It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. It's another edition of your midweek Rico Bronia. Boy, this postseason sucks. Let's just admit it. Watching every other team play well, watching the Phillies play well, it's terrible. This is going to be the longest postseason in the history of mankind, but hopefully we'll keep you entertained throughout it. We will focus today on a couple of things. Number one, a lot of emails responding to our podcast from a few days ago, if you missed it, about which was the worst season in the history of the New York Mets, and we debated quite a few years. It was a very depressing episode, but a very informative episode. So we'll touch base on some of the emails we got, some of the responses, some of the disagreements we have over the worst season ever. And then we have a further discussion, more of an in-depth discussion on what an extension for Pete Alonso looks like. We got a great email. I think it was from two episodes ago with a guy giving a very strong opinion about why not to extend Pete and using some of the examples of the past. Uh, we're going to go through basically every first baseman that's gotten a long-term deal over the last half a decade, even go back a little bit further. Some who were free agents, some who got extensions before free agency. We'll examine it. We'll see where Pete kind of fits in all of that and what our diagnosis is on the kind of contract he should probably get. So we'll do all that on the Rico. We will discuss on the next edition of Rico. I know I tweeted about it a few days ago when Pete did like a, an overnight show about it. And that is all the ideas everybody has to change the MLB playoffs. Because that's what you do when your team's out of it. When your team's out of it, you think about ways to change the format that currently exists. So I'll give you my idea. We'll listen to Pete's ideas. And there are hundreds of people who have tweeted and sent emails with their ideas. We'll go through some of the best. But let's start off with some of your emails, therecob at gmail.com, in response to the most disappointing season in the history of the Mets. If you missed the last episode, I'll give you a very quick synopsis. Pete says 2023. Obviously, 101 wins into that mess we all witnessed that ended a few weeks ago. And I argued as bad as 23 was, and it was bad, that 2017 was actually the worst season in the history of the Mets, coming off of the expectations of winning the pennant in 15, making the playoffs in 16 with all those injuries, and really the hope we all had coming into 2017. So here are some of your emails, some of your responses. We'll start with Ed. Ed actually writes, how about this burner? I don't put 2023 in my top five, and here's why. I don't know if you can count this, but you kind of have to. I'm hopeful and even excited for this team in 2024. Regardless of what you think of the front office things, it seems like we are headed towards being done and built the right way. I did not leave a bad season in the past excited for the following year. And, you know, it's crazy, but he's kind of right. Uh, when you go back and look at some of these bad seasons in the history of the franchise, we know what follows. When 2009 was the horror it was following the collapse of seven and losing a pennant race in 08, we now know what that turned into. It turned into a dark era of New York Met baseball. It only makes, almost makes it worse. 2017, same thing. Mets have that horrible year, and how did they follow it up in 18? They sucked. Had they followed up in 19? Well, they didn't suck, but they had a lot of brutal losses. Had they followed up in 20? Had they followed up in 21? So the 23 season does leave that question of what's next. 
And if you are optimistic about David Stearns and optimistic about Steve Cohen spending big and let the Rangers and Phillies be our guide, spending big is good. You just have to spend it on the right people. I could understand how you could look eventually at 2023 if things do turn in a positive way as a speed bump as opposed to the worst season in the history of the franchise. It's a fair point. I, I get it. But again, like, I mean, there's also the other outcome of expectations may be really high for next year, and it could also go backwards too. <laughs> so maybe next year is the one that we're waiting for that's going to be the worst of all time. <laughs> uh, Ariel Hoffman writes, maybe related to you, Pete. Is there anybody in your family named Ariel? No, not that I know of. Oh, maybe it's a distant cousin. Ariel writes, Evan, Pete, love the podcast. I definitely think all the seasons you listed are good candidates for worst season. But what about 2003 as a runner-up? Didn't they sign Alomar, Vaughn, Burnitz, and Cedeno that year? And they all significantly underperformed. If I remember correctly, the team had pretty high expectations and were horrendous. So the 2003 New York Mets were a horrendous team. You got, you definitely got that part right. But 2002 was also a year of expectations. And even though 2003 was far worse, that 2002 team was the team that actually added a lot of the guys you mentioned. Robbie Alomar's first year was 2002. Mo Vaughn's first year was 2002. The return of Roger Cedeno was 2002. And the return of Jeremy Burnett's was 2002. So it was actually a year earlier. The big addition in 2003 was Tommy Glavin. That was the one, and, and well, that season sucked. Glavin opened it up. They got bombed on a 35-degree day against the Chicago Cubs. So 03 was a follow-up to the disappointment of 2002. 2003 was a worse season, but I, I remember going into 03 almost realizing this ain't going to work. We already spent a lot a year earlier, and it was a disastrous season, so I didn't actually feel like 03, it was going to get much better. You know, one thing I meant to ask you, I forgot. How many seasons were they projected to be a playoff team in general or be a, you know, a high number of win total and they just fell flat? I know that you had like those wide margins, but I feel like majority of the time, the Mets, even in bad years, are always projected to be a, a above average team. Am yeah, I so wrong? Here's, what's, here's what's crazy about that. Between 1990 and 2009, so that's a sample size of about 19 seasons. And you got to take out 1994 because we never had a conclusion. And certainly 1995 where I couldn't find over-unders because it was a shortened season. So between 1990 and 2009, the Mets had an over-under that was projected to be above 500. So it's subjective on what a playoff season is. Obviously, the playoff format was different for a while. They were projected to be an above 500 team every single season but two. Now think about that. 1990, they had an over-under that was 88. 91, 88. 92, 88 and a half. 1993, 84. Now we know how those seasons went. 1994, going into that season, they were finally projected to be a bad team because they were coming off a 103 loss year and they had an over-under of 71. But even in 1996, because they had played well at the end of 95, their over-under was 82. 1997 was the last year for a while where they had a bad over-under. It was 76. They obviously overdid it because they won 88 games that year. And after that, 84 and a half, 91 and a half, 90 and a half, 88 and a half, 90 and a half, 86 and a half, 81 and a half, 85, 91, 
88, 93 and a half, 90 and a half. They didn't finally have an over under and an expectation of being bad until 2010, which is remarkable because in most of those years, the Mets were bad. So I think a lot of it was the spending. You know, we kill the Wilpons a lot, but the truth was the Mets had these moments where they spent a lot. They did. Like that 0203, like we just talked about with that email about the 03 team, it was off of spending. Early 90s, they spent. So you're right, Pete. The Mets had high expectations for a good 20-year run and seemed to fall underneath it by a lot almost every year, which is remarkable. <laughs> now, I, now I know why I'm so depressed because of this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joe DiNardo writes, Evan, you made a lot of good points for which Met team was the worst, but for me, it was the 92-93 teams. As a fan who was still heartbroken by Darrell leaving, the promise of getting these players who he thought would produce was almost as heartbreaking. It just wasn't, it wasn't just that they wound up sucking. It was a team full of scumbags. <laughs> From Bobby Bonilla threatening reporters, the bleach, the firecracker incidences, Daryl and Daryl Boston rape situations. It was really the worst time of being a Mets fan for me. Funny little story. Bobby Bow went to the same high school I was attending in the Bronx. The day he stopped by the school, I was cutting class. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, it, it's bad enough when you have high expectations and you suck, which the Mets certainly had a decade later with that 02 and 03 team we were talking about. But say what you want about Robbie Alomar and his disappointment and Tommy Glavin and Mo Vaughn. No one would argue they're bad guys. No, maybe Glavin was tough to root for because he was coming from Atlanta. Maybe Robbie Alomar became tough to root for because he was such a shell of his former self. But they weren't bad guys. A lot of those early 90s teams guys were not good. You know, you had Brett Saberhagen with the bleach, as he referred to. Vince Coleman throwing the firecracker. Like, it was it was really, really bad. Oh, wait, the Alomar spitting situation was after the Mets? Nah, that was prior. That was about six years earlier. Okay. And by that point, I don't want to say he had rehabbed himself completely, but he sort of had. It was a bad moment. It was a bad incident with John Hirschbeck. I, I remember when the Mets had acquired Alomar. It was almost an afterthought. It was certainly a part of his resume, but I think we'd all moved on from it. Nate Bump writes, love the show. I'm with Pete on this one. Steve Cohen and the optimism he has generated as an owner makes 2023 the worst in Mets history. It's, it's not about the money invested or the players brought in. It's about the goodwill and the optimism his outward-facing ownership has created around the franchise. No doubt the spending is a part of the narrative, but figuring just as large as Cohen's seemingly plain-faced engagement with the fan base whose interest he appears to indulge and his very public messaging about getting the Mets right. The poor performance on the field in 23 and the front office dysfunction that has defined the Cohen ownership since its inauguration has undercut a public narrative that had emerged around the Mets as an organization moving away from the apathy and dysfunction of the Madoff Mets. In my opinion, it has drawn into serious question the effectiveness of Cohen's ownership going forward. In some respects, the Epler resignation is more troubling than the performance on the field as it speaks to an internal ethics problem that in light of the Porter and Scott dismissals is clearly a cultural problem with the front office. Will Stearns be different than his predecessors? If history is president of the future, the answer is not likely. Oh boy, he's depressing all of us. To sum up, there's no greater kick in the balls than to discover that in spite of all your failing, 
flailing. You're exactly where you began when Cohen took ownership. And that is exactly what we learned this season. The organization, it has been since its inauguration, a rudderless, chaotic mess, incapable of sustained winning even in consecutive seasons. Sadly, the historical levels of financial investment in this team on the field, the carousel of utter dysfunction in the front office, almost all of it reflecting deeply problematic character issues, the very public signing, immediate unsigning of Correa, etc., only serve to deepen the public shaming of the Mets franchise that preceded Cohen's ownership. It's happening now in the media, and that will continue as part of Mets history from Nate. How about that? That's well, well written by Nate. And that's just part one. (laughs) Part two is coming up. (laughs) So (laughs) here's what I'd say, Nate, and it goes back to the first email we got. If this continues to be a thing, if the front office dysfunction continues, if we're talking about a new team president in another two years and a new manager after this one in another two years, and the Mets don't have consistent winning, I think that email will be spot on. But I think for now, most Met fans, or at least a good amount of Met fans, feel an optimism about 2024. And so a lot of times when talking about these awful seasons or awful losses, it always is about, well, what happened next? And right now we live in that moment of not knowing what's going to happen next. But I have optimism, like a lot of Met fans. So if it turns out to be the rudderless ship we've seen over the first few years of Cohen's ownership, then I think your email will turn out to be spot on. But for now, I think there's a lot of hope that it won't be. What's his, what's his name again? The email was from Nate. who? Nate. Nate. The one thing I will agree with Nate is, I, I, first of all, I am optimistic too. But the fact that we as Mets fans have had that pessimistic feel because what can go wrong will go wrong and the taste of the, the Wilpons is still not gone and you had such a quick fall again, it's easy to dive back in. But I, I want to be and I will be optimistic, especially going into this offseason. Eric writes, I'm going to vote for 2022 which is an interesting one. Obviously, 2022 is the year the Mets won 101 games and lost in the wildcard series, in case anybody forgot. I vote for 2022 because the team was a joy and raised our expectations high. But then the crash happened rapidly in the last month of the season, not drawn out across seasons. The Mets seemed to peak with the Dodgers series at the end of August, start of September. And after that, it's like they became a different team, unable to hold on to the division lead against the Braves. Being swept by the Braves when just one win would have given the Mets the tiebreaker and likely division. No recovery against the Padres in the wildcard series. No deep postseason run into Grom's last year as a Met. Scherzer and Bassett were so good early on, but disappointed in the end. No trumpets announcing a big save chance for Diaz. In my mind, the disappointment of the 2023 Mets was a continuation of the disappointment of the September-October 2022 Mets. That last part, I completely agree with. It did feel like this season we just had was a continuation of 2022. That that final month when things started to go bad, and it really went bad for a month, and then there was that tease because of the Eduardo Escobar game against the Marlins that put the Mets in a really good spot going into that Atlanta series. But it does feel like everything about 2023 was a continuation from 2022. You're right about that. We appreciate all the emails. Sorry we couldn't get to everybody. TheRicoB at gmail.com. Now let's get to Pete. This is 
the big question of the offseason. The big question of this offseason is how to handle Pete Alonso. The Mets obviously have a couple of options. Option number one is to trade him. I don't think a lot of us are in favor of that. Uh, it would certainly hurt their chances in the short term of 2024 and competing in 2024 because the likeliest scenario, you know, barring some made up farcical trade like, hey, Pete Alonso for Juan Soto, which is not happening, you're getting prospects. And while that deepens the Met farm system, it hurts their chances at winning next year. You're taking away all that power, the middle of the order pop. You're taking all that away. And really, what are you replacing it with? Long term, could a trade like that work out? I think it's unlikely because you really need to hit on those prospects. But in the short term, the Mets take a major step back. And if you're spending all this money to win now and in the future, you hurt yourself in the short term. That's option number one. Do I think the Mets are going to do that? I lean towards no. Not because of anything David Stern said at his press conference, but because I'm not sure they're even going to be able to get the package for a year for a guy who is one year removed from free agency. I don't think they're getting a deal that maybe they envision. So number one, trading him, I think is still unlikely to happen. Number two, eh, let him play out the year which I think is the likeliest scenario to happen, which is go out, have a monster year, we'll let you get to free agency, and we will play the risk game. It's a risky game because all you need is one owner. All you need is one general manager, and Pete could get a contract that maybe you deem stupid, and he's gone. The other option is a contract extension. Now let's take a look at other first basemen's who have either hit free agency, which is the likeliest scenario we're staring at, and guys that were locked up long-term. Let's start off with the guys locked up long-term. I tried to find a perfect comparison. There isn't. In fact, the comparisons I'm going to give you are so effing different, it's frustrating. So we can run the numbers on these guys. We could look at the age on these guys, but you're going to notice something that's very, very different. Let's start off with guy number one, Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt is a guy who at the time was 31 years old and he was one year removed away from free agency. So what are the differences? Difference number one, age. Pete Alonzo right now is 28 turning 29 years old, depending on when they sign him. Paul Goldschmidt, much better player, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not arguing that, and certainly more established and certainly a different kind of player. Like Paul Goldschmidt hit a lot of home runs and has hit a lot of home runs, but just a flat-out better hitter, maybe not the same pop that a guy like Pete Alonso has. But Paul Goldschmidt, upon being a year away from free agency, was 31 years old. Right now, Pete is 28, but he turns 29 in December. So I think for the sake of this, he is a 29-year-old if he signs this contract before entering free agency. That's a two-year age difference. But here's the other major thing that's different. Paul Goldschmidt signed that contract as a St. Louis Cardinal after he was traded to them by the Arizona Diamondbacks. So think about this. He had never played a game for the Cardinals upon signing the contract. Who's that similar to? That's similar to Francisco Lindor. That's who it's similar to. Because Francisco Lindor was acquired by the New York Mets on the final year of his deal, like Paul Goldschmidt, and the Mets worked out a long-term deal with him before he had ever played a game for the New York Mets. That's Paul Goldschmidt. And yes, it's different. 
Because while you can look at what Paul did between 2011 and 2018, and you see these really incredible numbers, a 297 header, which is the number one thing that's just different than Pete. Pete's batting average is about 50, 45 points less, obviously a lot more on the year he just had. A 930 OPS, which is higher than Pete. And he was a really good home run hitter, but never hit 40 home runs. Most home runs Paul Goldschmidt hit in a season was 36. He had eclipsed that 30 number four times in his major league career and had driven in over 100 runs three times. So very different player. Better player, I admit that. Cole Glover, better defensively. Actually found a way to sneak out 30 stolen bases in his season in 2016. But I do think it's important to recognize, because this does matter, that you're talking about a guy that's a career Met versus a guy who, upon signing that contract with the St. Louis Cardinals, had never played a game for that franchise. Now, what was this contract? It was a five-year, $130 million deal. That averages out to $26 million per year. If you want to give him the same amount of money per season, which is $26 million a year, but you want to tack on the two years because he is two years younger than Paul, and you want to use that as a frame of reference, then what you're looking at is a seven-year $182 million deal. Would you give him seven years, 182, Pete? No question. Would he take it? No. No, he would not take it. Just pointing that out. No, he would not take it. So that's the Goldie contract. Again, he was 31 years old. He would have been 32 years old if he waited to go into free agency. He got $26 million per year. And Paul Goldschmidt is a tremendous baseball player who, yes, is better than Pete Alonso. Now, that contract was also signed four years ago, so it's a different time. Other contracts have been handed out since then, which is important to recognize, and that is very important. You can't always compare. I mean, we're using this as a frame of reference because what else are you supposed to look at? You could look at other players, but it's impossible to compare like Trey Turner and Francisco Lindor and Corey Seager's contracts as shortstops to a first baseman, so you try to find the proper comps. So Goldschmidt's different, $26 million per year, five-year deal, 31 years old, a year moved from free agency, which was similar to Pete, had never played a game for the team. I'll give you another comp I found, Matt Olson. Here's the similarity between Matt Olson and Paul Goldschmidt. Again, Matt Olson had never played a game for the Braves upon signing the contract. The Braves lost Freddie Freeman or elected to not re-sign Freddie Freeman, however you want to frame it, and the Braves trade for Matt Olson, who is not one but two years away from free agency. But we know how Atlanta works. They operate on trying to lock up their guys as soon as possible. So Matt Olson was 28 years old at the time. If he had waited to get to free agency, he would have been 30, same age as Pete, but had never played a game for the Atlanta Braves, and the Atlanta Braves locked him up to a eight-year $160 million, uh, $168 million deal. That's $21 million per year. And here's why this contract pisses me off on so many levels. And it has nothing to do with hating the Atlanta Braves. I'll leave that part out. It's not about the Braves getting another guy on a cheap deal. But this contract is an effing steal. And so to look at it, and say, well, that's what Pete has to accept, and if Pete doesn't, 
he's a douche or something like that. That's not really a fair way to look at it. Because a couple of things about Matt Olson. Matt Olson's year he's coming off of in 2023, the 53, 54 home runs, 139 RBIs. He had never come close to numbers like that. Not even close. I mean, not even in the same stratosphere. So we're thinking about a year that Matt put up after the contract was signed. So it's not like they would have gotten him on an eight-year, $168 million deal if he hadn't put up that number, let's say, in 2019. He puts that up in 2019. He ain't signing for eight years, 168. Because here's what Matt Olson was prior to signing this contract with Atlanta. Played only 11 games in 2016. Can't look at it. Played only 59 games in 2017. Was very good. Hit 24 home runs, 45 RBIs, 259 average, 1,000 OPS. But again, very small sample size of 59 games. 2018 plays a full year. 247, 29 home runs, 84 RBIs, 162 games, 788 OPS. Not that good. 2019 misses 40 games. But when he does play... Manages to hit 36 home runs, 267 average, 896 OPS, fine, fine season. 2020 was terrible. I'm going to throw it. It's 2020. And I think we're all, we all want to be fair about what that year was. Final year before he goes to Atlanta. So final year before he signs his contract. This is everything he's done in his career. Plays 156 games, 270, 39, 111, 911 OPS. Very good year. Gets shredded off a very good season, goes to Atlanta, is two years away from free agency, and says, F it, I'm going to lock myself up to an eight-year, $168 million deal. He then produces a 34-103 season in 22. And then obviously this past year puts up massive numbers. MVP kind of year, 54-139. That eight-year, 168, is not signed by Matt Olson if he puts together these two years. If Matt Olson doesn't sign that extension, and plays these two years out, and is a free agent right now at 29, 30 years old. He'll be 30 right before opening day. What do you think he's getting? He's getting a, he's getting a massive contract. Am I wrong, Pete? He's not, he's not no. signing 8-168. I think you'd probably see him sign like a, a, an eight-year deal for like 240, 250. I, th- I think you're right. And who knows? You get a bidding war going on. It could be worse than that. So I don't like Matt Olson's contract being used here because it's different. And he's also coming off of his best seasons. 8-168, it's only $21 million per season. The other first baseman I found that signed early, and you got to go back a decade. So it is completely fair to throw this out and say, come on, we're talking about 10 years ago, is Joey Votto. Joey Votto with Cincinnati was two years removed from free agency. He was he was young at the time when he signed this deal, too. And he tried to put the screws on Cincinnati, created like a deadline. If you don't sign me by now, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to wait. I'm going to go to free agency two years later. And who knows what he would have gotten. Joey Votto ended up getting a 10-year, $225 million deal. And Votto signed this. Two years away from free agency. Again, very, very different player than Pete. I mean, huge on-base guy, 320 average, won an MVP in 2010. Better player. Again, not saying Pete's better. I'm saying they're very, very different. 
That's for sure. And Votto signs that contract, and obviously that contract has now looked kind of crappy. But a part of why it's looked kind of crappy is because Joey Votto got old. <laughs> and when you give a guy a 10-year contract and he signed until he's 39 years old, that's the risk you run into. So Pete is 29 for the sake of this discussion. He's not getting a 10-year deal. He may ask for one. He's not getting one unless he plays out this season and hits, you know, 77 home runs. So I don't think a 10-year, $225 million deal is realistic, but it is a first baseman who signed a contract prior to free agency. Then you got the first basemans that went to free agency. The ones who got there and went to the highest bidder. And three of the four guys I'm about to mention left their team. And I say that because, and every circumstance is different. We can go through all of them. But when you get to free agency, it only takes one. And that's the risk you have about free agency. So the most recent one is Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman signed a six-year, $162 million contract with the LA Dodgers, coming off a championship with Atlanta. But he was a little bit older than Pete. And that's the other thing to keep in mind. If Pete waits the year, We're now talking about someone who's 30 years old upon free agency. Freddie was 32 years old upon getting the free agency. And those years matter. Let's not sniff at two years. Two years is a lot. It's like the difference in a contract, too. Freddie got six years, 162. That's $27 million per year. So higher per year than what Goldschmidt signed for, than what Olsen signed for, and even what Joey Votto signed for. Freddie Freeman, tremendous, tremendous player. It seemed like the Braves had a level of interest but they were content in letting him walk. The other guy is Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols signed a 10-year, $240 million contract at age 32 years old to leave the St. Louis Cardinals and sign with the Angels of Anaheim. And again, not a contract that you look back too fondly on because Albert Pujols, as great of a player as he was, he's one of the greatest right-hand hitters I've ever seen, started to decline. And you could even see his decline in the year prior to free agency. Like He had a good year in 2011 that last year with St. Louis, but it wasn't the same. It was the first year he got under 300. It was the first year where his OPS was under 1,000, essentially. It was basically over 1,000 every single year. It was still a very good year, but you could see the decline. What's funny, though, about Albert is that even though when you look at his angel numbers, they're not particularly great. They're not particularly dominant. What Albert Pujols mostly did to the very, very end is he went out and he played a lot. He didn't miss that many games. 2013, his second year there, he missed a bunch of games. But his first year there, he played 154 games. Year three of that deal, played 159 games. Next year, 157, 152, 149. By that point, he's 38 years old. That was one of those contracts. You give a 10-year deal to a guy who's 32. Don't you kind of know what you're doing here? Don't you kind of know where that's going? And it was tough because if you're a Cardinal fan at that time, you're thinking to yourself, that's a guy who has to be a forever Cardinal. The way we think about maybe Pete Alonso or Jacob DeGrom, you know, risk be damned. How can you let Albert Pujols play for another team? Cardinals did. They made the right decision. The other one is Chris Davis. And Chris Davis is obviously referred to as maybe one of the worst contracts ever handed out to anybody. Chris Davis was a Boris guy, so keep that in mind. Somehow he was able to pull it off. He was a free agent, even though he remained with the Baltimore Orioles. 
He actually was a free agent. And it was right after the 2000 and uh, I think it was 15 season. He got to free agency and the Orioles gave him a seven-year, $161 million deal. So pretty similar, pretty on par with like the Olsen deal, if you look at it. A little bit on par with the Freddie Freeman deal, $23 million a year. And Chris Davis lost it. And... I think that with Davis, for anyone who wants to bring up Pete Alonzo as a comp to Chris Davis in terms of falling off the rooftop, I would merely ask, why would you think that? Like, here's the thing about Chris Davis. Chris Davis was a big prospect. He did not pan out in Texas, bounces to Baltimore, and at age 26 years old, puts it all together. And he had one, two, like three really good seasons. And that's it. Now, I didn't think at the time Chris Davis was just going to completely fall apart despite being a high strikeout, low batting average guy, though he did have some pretty good batting average years with Baltimore. I don't think there were any signs that he was going to completely fall off. But Chris Davis had you know, some warning signs to look at. The fact that the early part of his career, he hadn't put it all together. I would not be afraid of Pete Alonso turning into Chris Davis because I don't have any evidence of it. We could sit and look at all these guys and you try to predict the future, Ryan Howard. You try to predict what the hell happened to Ryan Howard. There's no evidence that that's going to happen to Pete Alonzo. And any evidence you try to come up with is just based on what? His body? Like, what about his body would tell you he's going to break down? Doesn't mean it can't, just means there's no evidence to support that. And the last one I looked at was Prince Fielder. Speaking of guys that sort of broke down, Prince Fielder signed a nine-year, $214 million deal with the Detroit Tigers. And I got to give the Detroit Tigers credit. He signs that deal in the first year of his contract with the Detroit Tigers. I just got to read you these numbers because I think we sort of forget that Prince was... There's almost this assumption Prince Fielder was a disaster. Like he signs the deal and he sucks. Year one of that deal, he plays 162 games. Hits 313, 30 home runs, 108 RBIs, a 940 OPS. Ninth in the MVP voting. In the second year of his contract with Detroit, plays 162 games. Hits 279, 25 home runs, 106 RBIs, 819 OPS. Good year. Not as great as the first year. Good year. The Tigers then decide we're going to trade him for Ian Kinsler. It was the smartest move the Tigers ever made because then he goes to Texas and that's when Prince was done. He could not physically stay healthy, played 40 games in 2014, actually bounced back and had a really good season in 2015, hit 305, 841 OPS, and then 2016, he got hurt and he was done. And that was it. And Prince Fielder's career ended prematurely because he only played five seasons of that nine-year contract. We could sit here today and look at his body type and say, well, it wasn't tall. He was very wide. He was a vegetarian. We knew that was going to happen. Did we really know? And my point to this is you don't know. You don't know with anybody, like anybody who gets a long-term contract, whether it's Pete Alonso or it's Brandon Nimmo or it's Francisco Lindor or it's Prince Fielder or it's Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton, Unless a guy has a history, 
before that of not staying healthy? You don't know. So don't make an assumption that the guy's going to crumble and fall apart. Here's what I know about Pete Alonzo. Here's what I know. He plays. If he falls apart and can't stay healthy over the course of whatever contract he ends up with, isn't there a party that shrugs your shoulders and says, well, who the hell knew that was going to happen? Because I don't have that evidence. He missed one game in 2019. He missed three games in 2020. He missed eight game or 10 games in 2021, two games in 2022. And this past year, a year in which he spent time on the IL, he missed eight games. When you are single digits in terms of missing games every year, I feel good about it, your health. So based on all those contracts we pointed out, free agency is a wild card because it involves A, what kind of year he's going to have in 2024, and then B, what team is going to offer stupid money. Based on extensions, based on free agency of other guys, and based on how good I think Pete is, here's the contract I would offer. Again, Pete would be 29 years old if this contract extension kicks in this upcoming season. Okay? I would start off by saying I would try, I'd give him a seven year contract. Let's start with the number seven. Okay? So that's 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35 years old. More than reasonable to have a guy locked up until he's 35 years old. When you look at some of these other guys, they're locked up to a later age than that. Paul Goldschmidt is locked up until he's 37, if I'm not mistaken. Matt Olson is locked up till he's 36, 37. So you're, you're kind of in line with that on a seven-year deal. And I think seven of your Pete definitely gives you comfort. So do you think seven right off the top is a fair number for both sides? Because I'm even willing to go further on it to bring his AAV down, kind of like they did with Brandon Nimmo. So I'd even go a little bit further. But I would try seven years to start. Seven's a good start, but I, I have no problem getting close to double digits because I think you lock them up and say you're meant for life. So you what? You go nine years? You go 10 years? You, did you say you I, go 10 years? I would go close to double digits. I'd, I'd start probably go to, I would probably start with eight, maybe nine to start. Well, I, look, I think the trade off is it's kind of like the Nimmo deal. Brandon Nimmo signed an eight year contract. Let's keep that in mind. Now, he got to free agency, so that is one thing that's a little bit different. We're talking about an extension, a buyout a year. Brandon Nimmo signed an eight-year deal in free agency and was 30, okay? He was 30 for opening day of 2023, so a year older or the same age if Pete waits to free agency, and they had no problem giving him an eight-year deal, and Brandon Nimmo, keep this in mind, has a worse health record than Pete Alonso. Worse, now to his credit, Brandon came out basically played every game this season, but prior to that, 2022 was his only healthy season. He missed 80 games in 2021. 2020, you kind of throw out, but he was relatively healthy. In 2019, he missed 95 games. In 2018, he missed about 20 games. In 2017, he missed a bunch of games. So you're talking about a guy who's got a much better track record and plays a position at first base in Pete, that has less wear and tear on you, and they're willing to go to an eight-year deal. So based on that, and the reason they did it was to bring his AAV down. Nim only makes $20 million a year. So here's what I'd say to Pete. I'd say, look, six-year contract. I'll move it down to six because I'm going to give him big money. I'm going to give you $30 million a year. 
which will make you the highest paid first baseman in the history of baseball. And if you look at who makes more than $30 million a year, I'll give you the list right now, Pete, if you're listening. Here are the guys. Here's the top salary makers in Major League Baseball. And you'll hear the guys that we're going to throw out. Max Scherzer, throw him out. Justin Verlander, throw him out. Jacob DeGrom, throw him out. By the way, how about that? Those are the three highest paid players in baseball. Aaron Judge, we love you, bro. You're not Aaron Judge. Anthony Rendon, what a horrible contract that is. Mike Trout, $37 million. Garrett Cole, $36 million. In fact, I got to skip all these pitchers because they're, they're meaningless in this discussion. There's a lot of pitchers. That's a different podcast, by the way, for all these overpriced pitchers. Nolan Arenado, 35. Corey Seager, 35. Francisco Lindor, 34. Uh, Carlos Correa, 33. Giancarlo, 32. Alex Bregman, 30. Mookie Betts, 30. That's it. That's the list. Everybody else is in that 29 range and below. Devers, 29. Altuve, 29. Chris Bryant, 28. Bryce Harper, 27. Trey Turner, 27. Freddie Freeman, 20. So I'm giving you 30. $30 $30 million a year, six years, 180. I start with that. Now, if he wants years, here's what I tell you. Okay. You want years? You want an eight-year deal? Okay. Then I'm going to give you $26 million a year. So I'm going to give you eight years, 208. Is that is that what I came up with? Yeah. So I'll give you more years, but I'm bringing down the salary to $26 million a year, which, by the way, is right on line with those other first basements. Matt Olson makes, well, Matt, Matt's too low. Goldschmidt's at 26. Freddie Freeman's at 27. So I would offer 6180. I'd offer 8208. And by the way, with the comps that we have out there with the other first basemen, Knowing it's also a couple of years later, which we have to factor in, knowing how reliably consistent he's been as a slugger, I think those numbers are not only online with the other first basemen's, I think that's an offer that's pretty damn good. And I think that Scott Boris would have to consider it. And to my fellow Met fans who are listening, even those that want to bring up Pete Alonso's war, and there's a reason I didn't bring up his war, I think war has been unfair to him. We watch them every single day. I don't think it's a fair number because you bring up these wars and yeah, he looks like he looks like an average player. And I don't think there's anybody that's watched him defensively improve over the last few years or his consistency that actually thinks he's that kind of player. And that's why I don't bring it up. Now, you want to say it's me being unfair? It's me picking and choosing? No, I I think, Pete, you and I have been very consistent about this, that it has defied logic what Pete Alonzo's war has looked like over the last three years. It hasn't been fair to him. So 6180-8208 are my two big offers for Pete to get an extension done based on the comps. So we're not that far off. I I love the 6180. I I would stick with that. But what I would do is, and I, I, I would keep those years the way they are, 30 per year for the first six years, but tack on $50 million for three more years at the end. So nine for 230 Nine for 230 But the last three years, you're only paying the A, it's about 15 mil per year. So you're overpaying the first six and the last three where you're like, all right, well, what are we going to get out of Pete? He's a, he's a Met for life, but. Is he really going to be getting that much in on the free market anyway? Those By the way, my, my understanding 
about AAV and the way luxury taxes are calculated is that even if you backload a deal or front load a deal, however you want to load it, it always comes down to their average annual salary. So even if you want to backload it a certain way or front load it a certain way, it's always going to come down to that average. So that contract you just pointed out brings down his AAV to $25 million, which again is right in line here. If you're just looking at what a guy made per year, number one is Freeman at 27. Number two is Goldschmidt at 26. Joey Votto at 25. Pujols at 24. Davis and Fielder were at 23. Matt Olson is at 21, which is just, I mean, it annoys me. <laughs> it annoys me to no end that number. So if you keep it in the 20s, which you can, and I certainly did on the eight-year offer, you're giving him a lot of money, but from a reasonable standpoint, you're still keeping him as around the 17th highest paid player in all of baseball. Because right now, and I think this includes Miguel Cabrera, so that'll go away. You're talking about 16 players in Major League Baseball that make $30 million a year or more. 16. And they got a bunch of guys right below that threshold. Right below it. What I am curious about with the Mets right now is are they willing to make that offer? Like, do they go to the table right now with Scott Boris and say, we're going to give you that kind of offer? Or do they just sit back and say, you know what? We've waited this long. We got a new president in David Stearns. Let's just let this get to free agency and figure it out then. The risk of free agency, like I said, and it happened with Pujols, it happened with Fielder, to a different degree, it happened with Freeman. You invite everybody to get in on this. And now all you need is that one big offer, and he's gone. And I'll tell you this right now, as much as we all trust Steve Cohen's financial might, I think if he gets to free agency, I think it's likelier than not that he's gone. And that's a scary proposition. Now, even with me saying that, I still don't want to trade him. Because I think once you trade him, it's a fantasy to think you're then going to sign him a year later. I think that's fantasy. That does not happen. That's a very rare thing to have happen. I know we saw it with the Yankees and Aroldis Chapman. It's a very different situation. And it's it's not happening again. Like once you make that decision, he's gone. So I'd rather hold on to him, even if it means my chances of keeping him have dropped below 50%. But I would warn David Stearns this. We just gave you these figures. If in David Stern's mind, he says, I don't value him at more than $21 million a year. I don't value him at more than seven years. Like the most I'm willing to go with Pete Alonzo is six years, 132. If that's what he's thinking, then as much as I hate the idea of trading him, then you have to trade him because he's gone. Like if you already know you are valuing him in a way that you're not going to pay him more than a buck 30 over six years, then the script's been written. He's not going to be a Met. But that's how I value him. I, I would be willing at this point to say, I'll go give you six years, 180. Let's get this thing done right now. $30 million a year. You want to join that club? Done. Six years, 180. Let's go to war. Let's go to town. Let's end this distraction. Because that would also be nice to just end this distraction and end this offseason. If David Stearns could come out right after the World Series and say, hey, before we announce a new manager, breaking news, Pete's done. I think that would be the best way to start this offseason, wouldn't it? Uh, that being incredible, but for some reason, I just don't see that happening, unfortunately. 
And that's not being a pessimist. That's just being a realist right here. It feels like this is going to go deep into the beginning of the regular season. That's how I feel. Great. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Any thoughts on these contracts? Obviously, send us an email. We'll read a few on the next edition of the Rico, the Rico B at gmail.com, the Rico B at gmail.com. I mentioned this at the top of the pod. I tweeted about this a few days ago. We will have an extensive discussion on the next edition of Rico Bronia about a new and improved playoff format. I have an idea. Pete has an idea. And we have seen many of your ideas. We'll pick some of the best and we will certainly discuss it on a hot debate known as the new playoff format that it will probably never happen because we're stuck with this one. So we look forward to that on Rico Bronia. Check out Pete with Sal and BT during the week. Me and Tiki, 2 o'clock on the fan. Thanks for downloading and listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>